Well, hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I'll be your host for this interview. Just a brief background about myself, I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio at Essence Wellness Chiropractic Center. My goals for producing these research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is an important part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, to chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines and the wider community. The second part is to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic research. And lastly, I'd like to try to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Today, I am extremely excited to interview Dr. Bernadette Murphy. She is at the forefront of research regarding the neurophysiology of chiropractic. Dr. Murphy graduated from Queen's University in 1985 and the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College in 1989 before moving to New Zealand where she completed her master's degree in 1992 and PhD in 98 in human physiology at the University of Auckland. She was a full-time faculty member in the Department of Sport and Exercise Science from 1999 to 2007 where she established a master's degree in exercise rehabilitation. In 2008, January, she returned home to Canada and took on the role of head of kinesiology in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, where we're doing this podcast today. Mm -hmm. She is the director of the Human Neurophysiology and Rehabilitation Laboratory. The overall theme of her research is neural adaptation in humans and the role of physical interventions, such as spinal manipulation and exercise in aiding the reestablishment of appropriate neuromuscular connections. She has previously been awarded the World Federation of Chiropractic Best Scientific Paper Award in 1995 and third prize in 2007. The New Zealand Chiropractor of the Year 2004 and the 2010 Ontario Chiropractic Association Award for the most significant contributions to research. She was just awarded the Senior Researcher Award at UOIT. She has supervised numerous award-winning masters and PhD students and received significant research funding in New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. And she is currently on the editorial board of the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association and serves on the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council, Biological Systems and Functions Evaluation Committee, which peer reviews research grants for the Canadian government. So, Dr. Murphy, thanks very much for agreeing to be on this podcast. I'm super excited to have you on. Okay. And uh, so let's start, I guess, as close to the beginning as, as we can go. Okay. And that would be, uh, can you tell me how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place? Yep. Okay. So back when I was uh, in high school and university, I used to be a competitive middle distance runner. And uh, when I was at Queen's, I had a couple of injuries that were really keeping me from being able to compete. In fact, I got to the point where I could hardly even walk without a limp, let alone compete at running. And uh, I'd been through the sort of traditional medical routes, and I'd been to see a physio, and I'd probably had X number of ultrasounds on my trochanteric bursa, and I was still not getting any better. And uh, then I was actually referred to see a chiropractor in Toronto uh, called Jamie Laws, and he was excellent, and he basically fixed my injury. But what really impressed me, aside from the fact that I could run again, uh, was the approach that he took. I really liked the fact he took a very holistic approach, but he also looked at um, my biomechanics, and instead of just trying to treat what was inflamed, he tried to figure out why it was inflamed, and that was actually a very appealing approach to me, and so that was why I decided to go into chiropractic. That's great. And so that's a, that's a great personal experience. I, I certainly find that a lot of us get into chiropractic because of these personal experiences. Uh, so what did you major in when you were at uh, Queen's? Oh, I did a life sciences degree when I was at Queen's. So that sort of covers a lot of the basic biological sciences. So I've always been interested in that sort of pathway, I guess, and uh, you know, then found my way to being a chiropractor. Oh, that's great. And 
So you went to CMCC, and then after graduation, you ended up going to New Zealand. I did. Tell tell me about how you got to New Zealand from uh, Toronto. Oh, okay. Well, I suppose, uh, like, so, well, I actually went with my ex-husband, uh, who was my husband at the time, but we were both runners, and he had represented Canada in the World Cross Country Championships when they were held in New Zealand, and ah. he really loved the country. And it was a great chance for us. We were originally just going to go on an exchange for two years through his company. And so that's why I decided to do my master's initially, because I, I realized by the end of CMCC that I loved practicing, but I also loved research. So I was thinking that I would maybe do my master's and, you know, practice part time, be a researcher part time. And uh, I guess when I was down there, I really caught the research bug. And so I decided to go on and do my Ph.D. And uh, here I am. <laughs> that's excellent. So you were in uh, doing a master's degree, and uh, and then you ultimately went on to do the PhD. And at the time you were doing your master's degree, uh, I remember reading a, a study early on about uh, sacroiliac joint manipulation and H reflexes. Is that did yeah, you do that, that was, during your master's? Yeah, degree? that was my master's study. Oh, okay. Because I w I'd always been very interested in trying to understand. I mean, I think part of it, if I backtrack a little bit. When I was an intern in the clinic at CMCC, I just happened to be one of those interns that had a lot of cases that had a neurological component. And I became very interested in how chiropractic was impacting these neurological changes. I had a fascinating case study of a young lady uh, who came in. She had bilateral foot drop. She thought she had a spinal tumor. Her dad had just died, died of brain cancer. He, you know, she, the whole family thought something really horrible was going on. And uh, yet, ironically, they brought her to me first. And uh, so I referred her to the neurologist. But in the meantime, we were checking out, trying to see if, if it could be coming from her back. And there was nothing on x-rays that looked like there was no tumor or anything like that. And then I took a greater history. And it just turned out the way she'd had her feet wrapped around her chair when she was actually typing, she'd actually given herself a bilateral traction neuropathy of her common perineal nerve. Uh, just the way she had her feet wrapped, she tractioned the nerve. And hmm. uh, so I guess I've had a number of cases like that that really made me interested in neuroscience in particular. And so I kind of, that's why I picked that area. And I was, but I was also interested in clinically the things I'd seen. I knew after sacroiliac manipulation, you know, people often said, I feel like I can take a better stride. I feel like my leg muscles work better. But we just had no objective evidence of that. And the problem is if, if, if you test people pre and post and they're stronger, it's just so easy to say it's, it's just because they were trying harder after. Right. But if you have something objective that they can't fake and you can sort of say, yeah, this has changed, then it begins to give you both the sort of neurophysiological evidence to go then with the increased strength. And then you can start drawing conclusions about mechanisms, which A, helps us actually design better treatments and also hopefully can help us um, with diagnosis in some of the really tough cases. Exactly. Uh, you've authored numerous publications in the scientific literature and journals such as Spine, JMPT, Somatosensory and Motor Research, Experimental Brain Research, Journal of Neurophysiology and Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology, just to name a few. Um, and you've invested a lot of your education and training into neurophysiological methods. What, what do you see as some important questions or hypothesis regarding chiropractic that we can address through neurophysiology. Okay. I, I guess if I backtrack, you know, if, if we think back to the beginnings of chiropractic, it was sort of based on the idea that chiropractic somehow affected the nervous system. And, of course, it does because anytime you touch anybody, whether it's with an instrument or with your hands, you, you're creating a change in afferent input. And then the question is, what does the central nervous system do with that? Now, of course, years ago, the idea there used to be that old idea that there was bone putting pressure on the nerve. Because that those mechanical explanations make sense to people. They intuitively make sense. But, of course, you when that becomes clear that that's no longer the full story or that's not the correct story, you don't necessarily just throw out the idea that you're impacting the nervous system. And so I think things have changed. We now have techniques available to us that were not even available even 25, 30 years ago that give us windows into the nervous system at all levels. And if I think back to some of the things that really piqued my interest, when I first moved to New Zealand, I was very used to treating people in Canada with RSI or re repetitive strain injury. Sure. Um, 
And indeed, a lot of injuries of athletes, not just office workers, are overuse type injuries. When I went to New Zealand, and both in New Zealand and Australia, they didn't think RSI was real. They thought people just made it up to get off work. Yeah. <laughs> and it, but what fascinated me watching patients with RSI is I thought, why do people wait till they're so profoundly disabled before they present for treatment? I mm -hmm. thought that was very strange. Yeah. So I thought maybe it's because they're not perceiving their overuse as it is developing, and it only becomes apparent that there's a problem when they've actually got pain. So somewhere along the way, the nervous system is changing or getting input that it's not doing anything with, and that must be a product of how we're wired. So I guess I became interested in better understanding the basic science of the human body with, with the idea that then I could better understand what was happening when it went wrong, and indeed how the brain processes information. And so in that way, interestingly, although I've contributed, I think, to chiropractic science, I also feel I have a big contribution to make to basic science because it helps us understand better how the brain and CNS does process information. Absolutely. And and it seems uh, in my research as well and, and other chiropractors' research that we have to do some of these basic science studies before we can apply them clinically. We have to uh, practice the methods and exactly. own them and... I, and filter out some of the uh, funny things I, that may go I 100% <laughs> agree with you. And in fact, I have observed this from clinicians all over, not just chiropractors, medical doctors, physios, people who are clinicians, if they haven't done the science training, they have the best intentions in the world and they have wonderful clinical observations. But a lot of these scientific methods, they, yes, they take a long time to get good at. So to give you an example with that H-reflex study, mm -hmm. it took me six months of doing H-reflexes in the lab just to get to be able to measure them reproducibly enough that if I saw a change, I could trust that it was a real change. And of course, you can't just do a single H reflex. You have to average many of them. Yeah. A lot of the techniques are very complex and it's very time consuming. There's a wonderful quote. I mean, hopefully everybody remembers Sherrington. It was really in many ways, probably the father of human neurophysiology. And basically one of his favorite quotes, which I'll misquote, but you know, it's sort of like anything worth doing is slow, it's laborious, it's painful. Yes. But but that literally is the way of it. It's that slow, careful work so that you can trust what you're doing that then will lead to the breakthroughs. Exactly right. I couldn't agree more. That's so profound. Um, so I'd like to delve into uh, some of the research areas that you've explored over the years. Um, and I've just, I've got a list in front of me um, one recent one that I saw on PubMed was a paper about cervical manipulation and heart rate variability. And, and uh, I'll, we'll go through this list, but I, I guess the bottom line is just what, what you said a few minutes ago was your research is looking at uh, uh, the nervous system and uh, afferent input, efferent output, and trying to see where dysfunctions, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, or the integration of these things occur and yes. how chiropractic may impact on that. Yes. But you're obviously contributing to the basic science yes. uh, in these areas. Uh, but within, in trying to find out how chiropractic might affect things, uh, there are certain methods that you've used over time. Yes. And so one of them is heart rate variability. Yeah. Uh, others have included the uh, H-reflex that we just talked about, mm -hmm. somatosensory evoke potentials, um, you just showed me your great lab, and I saw the transcranial magnetic stim unit that you have, several units that you have there. Um, I know you've done some work on adjustments in joint proprioception uh, position sense. And then you've also done work uh, in the exercise science literature on addressing uh, altered sensory motor integration, how exercise could affect that, as well as uh, how pain affects sensory motor integration. Yeah. So I don't know, where should we start? Uh, what do you think? Um, well, we can, I mean, you sort of made a nice list of some of the publications. I could start with heart rate variability because it was something I was interested in years ago. And then a lot of people were doing good work on it, Barbara Paulus among others. And uh, I sort of left it for a while. And here's the interesting thing. Heart rate variability or changes in heart rate variability are now being understood as a component of many, many disease states. So for instance, depressed people have decreased heart rate variability. I have a colleague who's a Canada Research Chair and she's in health informatics. She looks at huge physiological data streams from infants in neonatal intensive care units and she can use a decrease in heart rate variability. Her name's Dr. Kelly McGregor. She can actually detect when those babies are going to go septic or into life-threatening infection 24 
24 hours before traditional monitoring is giving them any information. Very interesting. So the thing about heart rate variability, it's a very sensitive tool. And in fact, this might surprise people. It's the decrease in variability is a hallmark of illness. You actually... If you think about homeostasis, you actually want some variability. So looking at variability, but the other interesting thing, which is in our paper, is that heart rate variability, there's different components, high frequency and low frequency, which reflect the balance of autonomic input from both the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So using Dr. McGregor's advanced technical processing techniques, we were able to co-supervise a student and oh, do this excellent. really neat study. And uh, indeed, we showed some really interesting findings with manipulation. And what's fascinating is I've recently had the chance, I did a bit of continuing ed for some chiropractors in Saskatchewan, and I was reading the literature on chronic pain. And again, now they're understanding that, again, people in chronic pain get this decreased variability. So if you now know that something is a really good marker for illness or people being not well, and you're able to show that chiropractic can impact that, I think that's very powerful evidence that chiropractic is able to actually affect the nervous system on many levels. Uh amazing so yeah but it, it's funny when you were going through that uh, the person I did my PhD under Dr. James Smart he was looking at postural control and what he found was that uh, reduced variability in postural control uh, with that he could predict motion sickness wow yeah. and, that's uh, interesting yeah so it just seems like reduced variability is not something that the human system uh, does well with <laughs> yeah and it's interesting they even think for falls risk obviously you don't want somebody who sways all over the place exactly. but a little bit of postural sway is good it's people who don't sway much at all yeah. it means they're almost very rigid and of course you know what happens to something rigid if you apply a force it's going to fall yeah. over whereas something that's got a little bit more flexibility has more exactly. chance exactly I, I see it as adaptability yeah ability adaptability to, to that's adapt, uh, change uh, yeah. or be able to go with the flow. yeah that's a great word and i honestly <laughs> think our thinking has changed because you're thinking is often limited by what you have available to measure things with. And and True. as our world is changing and we have the technology to look at things in a way we didn't before, we're beginning to uh, to understand so much more. I mean, people even now realize even connective tissue is alive. I mean, of course it's alive, but it's it, it's even got receptors that signal things we never realized in the past. I'm not a connective tissue expert, but I've you know seen a little yeah, bit in the totally, literature. And totally. it's really amazing when you look at how things are changing. Amazing. Um, in terms of the somatosensory evoked potentials and the transcranial magnetic stimulation, so Dr. Havik, uh, Heidi Havik, she was my PhD student in New Zealand. And the two of us, you know, we thought a lot about what we saw clinically. Both of us had seen a lot of patients with RSI. We were really intrigued. You know, some of the things those patients reported, they didn't come in necessarily with pain. They'd come in and say, my neck my neck doesn't feel right. I feel clumsy. I feel awkward. I'm mm -hmm. biting my tongue. I'm dropping things. Those were all signs to us that somehow the nervous system was not correctly integrating the incoming sensory information from the upper limbs or the lower limbs from whatever. And so the nice thing about somatosensory evoked potential, so basically it's EEG, but you're actually stimulating a nerve. So in our case, because we've studied upper limb, we stimulate the median nerve. And there's electrodes on different uh, areas of your scalp which will record from better from other parts of the brain you pick the potentials up all over but there's certain electrodes better pick up activity okay and it's been well worked out in the literature what different peaks mean so for instance the n20 which is a peak that happens 20 milliseconds after you stimulate the median nerve it represents the afferent volley arriving at the somatosensory cortex mm -hmm. so if the amplitude of that peak changes it tells you there's been some change in the processing at the uh -huh. primary sensory cortex. There's another peak called the N30, which is what we call the sensory motor integration peak. Others call it that too. It's changed in people with pain, but it has all kinds of neural generators, probably basal ganglia, maybe even premotor motor areas. So it's a very complex peak that represents activity from a lot of places. And so you now, we're now getting tools that can say, whatever was going on in this person, after they were manipulated, it changed. Or... When we compare people with neck pain to healthy people, there's a difference in how they process information. Uh, so that begins to be a very powerful tool to begin to say, when you change the input to the system, the nervous system processes things in a very different way, even in the brain. It's not just about the spinal cord. It's not just about muscles. It's happening across the system. Sure. 
Sure. Um, I just thought of a study, which I like to quote a lot. There's a physiotherapist called Nancy Beale, and in the late 90s, she did some really interesting work with monkeys, and she was very interested in, R- in uh, RSI, but progressing to focal hand dystonia. And these poor monkeys, what ha- what they had to do, she had indwelling electrodes in their sensory cortex, and she stimulated parts of their finger and got very nice, discrete activation of discrete parts of her sensory cortex. And then these poor monkeys had to squeeze a lever for several hours a day, around eight hours, to get enough food pellets to live on. You know, does that sound familiar? Uh, And what happened was these monkeys all started looking like they had focal hand dystonia after just a few weeks of these this repetitive squeezing and when she remapped their sensory cortex, these nice discrete activation patterns in response to stimulating parts of the hand, that was gone. It was now smeared, and you got all kinds of strange activation patterns. Interesting. And so it really, for me, was the beginning of that evidence that the strain is in the brain. It's not only in the muscle. If it's gone on for long enough, hmm. and it, as chiropractors, it's really critical when we're trying to explain prognosis to patients that it's not just about... Sure it is. If, you have, if you've literally just fallen over, that's an acute injury. That's a very different story than some of these chronic things. And it's the idea, and, and it even may explain why it takes so many visits with something so chronic, because you're trying to give the nervous system the correct information so that it can effectively recalibrate itself. That can take a long time, and that brings us into what we call neuroplasticity, which is a change in the way the nervous system processes incoming information. Mm-hmm. It can be changes at the level of the synapse. It can be molecular. And so it's it's very, very major changes that have happened, and it can take a long time to reverse them. And it's also why it's so important to intervene early before yeah. these changes become irreversible. Yeah. I love that term, strain in the brain. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, there was a nice new scientist article <laughs> that talked about Nancy Beale's work, and it used that, the strain is in the brain. Oh, and it's, uh, you know, I think it's it's such a change from how we're used to thinking as chiropractors, but it's really critical if we're going to, uh, you know, move forward and advance what we do and understand. I think the adjustment is so incredibly powerful as some initiating impulse to actually begin reversing that neuroplastic process. Yes, yes. And what could be interesting is what you put with it. Uh-huh. is that if you do the appropriate motor retraining, whether through exercise, so so clinically as a practitioner, I've always practiced, and I've observed, and I don't know what other colleagues have, but I personally do not like giving people exercises for the first few visits. I like uh, to see that they're maintaining the adjustments or manipulation, that they're starting to move more freely, their movement pattern is looking more normal, then I will introduce exercise because what I've observed, if I give exercises on a faulty movement pattern, yeah. it almost just reinforces the faulty exactly. movement pattern because they've already adapted to pain and exercise will just cause more pain. And so we, we really have so many things we've got to change um, to, to begin to be effective practitioners. And, and that's OK. All kinds of paradigms change in all kinds of disciplines, you know, right. um, you know, the. I'm laughing. I'm just thinking of, you know, in running, there was all these different revolutions in the kind of food that you ate, what was good, what was bad. There was the carbo loading. There was all kinds of things that people have done over the years. And, you know, then the evidence comes out and says, hey, you know what? That's not the way, the best way to think about it. And and I think as chiropractors, that's so critical is to, we know the adjustment's really powerful. I think the real move forward in chiropractic is going to be, what do we pair with the adjustment? And in some people, it might be psychotherapy. Some people, it may be exercise. And who do we, how do we know who's safe to adjust, when to adjust, all yeah. those sorts of things. Those are going to be the, the new territories of the future. How to, how to maximize all the variables together. Exactly. And how yeah. to predict. And it will be individual. You know, they talk about personalized medicine. And I think that is really important. It's, every, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Exactly. Now, before uh, we did this podcast, we were just talking briefly. And, and one of the things we were talking about was that it's uh, the type of information we give the nervous system is different, let's say, between mobilization and manipulation or, let's say, I don't know, a uh, slap on the back. I mean, yeah. what, you know, what's, what do you see as the difference? Uh, okay, here? well, I, I think if you want a bit of experimental evidence, Walter Herzog and his group did some nice work again back in the 90s, and they actually um, manipulated different levels of the spine And they recorded reflex EMG responses all along the spine. 
And it, this is an interesting question because people often say, do you need to get cavitation? Do you need the pop? Right, right. What, and really the effectiveness is the high velocity, low amplitude for a true high velocity manipulation. It just so happens that 95% of the time, a high enough velocity manipulation will also lead to the pop. But as all we know, as we all know, sometimes you get cavitation when you're just even testing and palpating. And then other times you feel the joint move, you know it's moved and you don't get a pop. So it's not 100%. But right. what was fascinating was with the high velocity, he got these reflex EMG responses. So my thoughts in terms of thinking about neuroplasticity, which is how I explain chiropractic to patients, is... If you have evidence that high velocity, for instance, causes an a change in the afferent bombardment, that can begin to change the neuroplastic response to something, which is not to say that other interventions don't work either. Sure. It's just that th there's something quite different and powerful about a high velocity, low amplitude manipulation. Uh, I have not personally studied enough on mobilization, but I do know they're very different. And so when I read a research article, I really like to see it described very, very clearly what they mean by manipulation. How do they define it? Right. Was it high velocity? Was it mobilization? So I think there's a role for all kinds of interventions. Sure. But I just want to know what it is they did in a given study. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, two people's work. Uh, Joel Picar has done uh, yes, some work. And I think... And Philip Bolton. And Philip Bolton, yeah. Yes. And uh, I, I remember the paper with Philip Bolton talking about the... I think it was more a theory paper, but the differences between mobilization and manipulation, that they yeah. stimulate different different aspects. Yeah, different se even different sensory receptors are going to be stimulated. So again, if you're getting a different afferent bombardment to the nervous system, you could predict that you're going to get differences in processing and different effects of those two things. Right. And then Dr. Picard's work was saying basically that there was an entrainment or I, I don't know if he used that kind of term, but uh, more or less a unique or inherent aspect to manipulation than mm -hmm. any other type of manual force yeah uh, it seems to engage certain receptors better uh i guess for lack of a better term um well that's great uh do you mind can we continue with uh some some more of these of our, uh, of studies sure. yeah this is great okay. um okay how about the uh the transcranial magnetic stim uh, i know we mentioned it uh briefly but Okay, so this is something that might be hard for people to get their heads around. First of all, I should say there's it's called TMS for short. There's actually many different kinds, okay? okay? The kind that I use in my lab, I stimulate over the motor cortex, and I'm recording responses from muscles. And depending on where I put my stimulating coil, I can stimulate muscles in the arm, in the hand. I, with a certain coil, you can even stimulate leg muscles, back muscles. Ah. I've mainly focused on the hand. I have done a little bit of work in back muscles, but it's it's actually very challenging to do and get nice, reliable results. Okay. Um, but upper limb, there's a nice focal coil, and there's obviously, as people may remember from their training days, the motor homunculus. There's very discrete areas of the motor cortex to activate different hand muscles. So that gives me a really nice tool to look at the excitability of the corticospinal pathway. What I can then do is there's different techniques. So you probably saw my lab. I've actually, actually have three stimulators. Two of them are hooked together. That's called a bi-stim. And then the other stimulator I use to stimulate the cerebellum. So more recently where the work has been going is that uh, with the bi-stim, I can look at both inhibition and facilitation because you have two pulses and you pair them. And one of them you do... Uh, there's many different paradigms. One, you can do like a one and a half milliseconds between the impulses. Okay. Another one is longer. For short interval inhibition, if you want to look at inhibitory pathways, you can separate them by two and a half milliseconds. Those are all technique things. It's very hard to get good at them. But the point being, you now have a tool to probe where you can say, this changed the inhibition or this changed the degree of facilitation at the level of the motor cortex to those neurons, um, which then fed, you know, supplied that muscle in the hand or a forearm or wherever it was. Got it. Got it. So it provides you with a tool where you can actually begin to say, this is what I think happened. And so you've been able to show that the adjustment does something different than in a normal control type situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what does it do? Okay, so we see differences. So what's really interesting there, again, is some old work from chiropractors, but from other people, even, uh, you know, some of Yanda's old work. Uh -huh. There's this, some muscles see, if you think of in the body, we're really actually much more simple creatures, despite our complex cognitive brains. But in terms of our motor responses, we can either switch a muscle off 
or we can make it con contract more, right? So sure. if you want, you can have spasm or you can have almost flaccidity or, and a muscle will be weak either way. If it's in spasm and the actin myosin filaments are overlapped, it'll be weak. And if it's switched off, it'll be weak. So for instance, the transversus abdominis we know tends to switch off. Mm -hmm. Whereas other muscles like the hamstrings tend to be almost overactive in response to pain for, for even in both situations, even sacroiliac joint manipulation or right. sacroiliac issues, sorry, transversus abdominis will switch off, hamstrings will be more switched on, okay? Got it. Similar things will happen in the upper limb, in the hand, and the forearm. So TMS can, has shown us that, again, there's that, what basically what happens is a muscle that tends to get overactive, it will actually get less active or it'll become more inhibited which is appropriate whereas muscles that have become underactive in response to manipulation they'll start firing more oh so if i understand this correctly in the simplest terms it, it almost normalizes the pattern yes exactly it normalizes the pattern that's a brilliant way to pick and again okay. you see when you get at that idea of if you just took a one size fits all and said uh, manipulation is going to make this muscle fire more. Well, maybe that's not appropriate. Maybe some sure. muscles are firing too much. So sure. yes, that normalization effect seems to be what it does. And I think if you think back, CNS can only respond motor-wise in two sure. ways. It can sure. make something fire more or make it fire less. Right. And, <laughs> and depending on the person, one person may be jazzed up too much, for yeah. lack of a better term, uh, another... Uh, inhibited. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so this is the thing. We test a muscle that's weak and we say, oh, we need to strengthen it. But sometimes if the problem is initially coming from the joint, the structures around the joint anyway, the small intrinsic muscles, the afferent feedback from those muscles, and that is what is causing your transversus abdominis to be inhibited or your quadriceps, then sometimes all you need to do is actually manipulate the joint and you're going to get an improvement. In fact, quite major gains in strength. So it's not necessarily that the person needs to train more, exercise more. I mean, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> but initially, maybe what you need to do is is actually reverse that neural inhibition, right? which joint manipulation seems to be effective at doing. Which is what the, if I remember correctly, that paper you're talking about with the uh, abdominal. The uh, transverse abdominis. Transverse abdominis, yeah. yeah. Um, in, in that paper, it, it got facilitated Yes, um, yes. Following. What was happening was the people had delayed activation. So if you think of what transversus abdominis does, it acts like a girdle, really. It, it helps to stabilize your spine. So if you're doing a rapid movement of an arm or a leg, transversus switches on so that the moment that you generate by that rapid limb movement doesn't knock you over, basically. Exactly. Now, if that muscle, in response to some sort of rapid movement that you're not expecting, if it's not coming on quickly enough, it's not able to stabilize your spine, and you're going to be at risk of injury, especially when you're in that sort of following mode, and you're going to get all your reflex contractions. It's much better if the CNS is activating those muscles in what we call a feed-forward manner. And that study did show that the sacroiliac manipulation, and it was only a single session. It was just a beginning study. Sure. So we need a lot more of those kind of studies. But yeah. it did show that 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 delay in muscle onset was reversed following the manipulation or improved anyway significantly. Right. So the muscles normally, uh, for example, the transversus abdominis normally would turn on as you do a rapid arm movement, and that's in anticipation. In anticipation, exactly. Of, Before of turning the, on other exactly. significant Before muscles. Before the arm even moves, the right. transversus comes on. Exactly. And if there's a delay in that, you're going to be at risk of injury to your back, even though you're just moving your arm. Exactly. How about... Uh, I, I read one paper that you looked at, mm -hmm. uh, adjustments in joint position sense, and I believe this was uh, the elbow. You were adjusting the neck and looking at elbow yeah. uh, repositioning. So, so that study was with Dr. Havik, and it was done in New Zealand. And it was really interesting because it was a very low-tech study. We're, we're doing something quite similar now, but much more high-tech with the people sitting. But that study... The people were actually lying down because we had to get a very a way to reproduce their joint position. Uh -huh. And, of course, they were blindfolded so they couldn't see what their limb was doing. We had them on a their arm on a frictionless surface, and they had to wait to move the arm around. Now, of course, because the people were lying there for so long, what was interesting is the people who had low-level neck pain just from lying there actually got worse over time just oh, okay. because, you know, they were yeah. in an awkward position. Yeah. So what was interesting was that the huh. group, um, that received the manipulation, they their elbow joint position sense improved. And so it was interesting because what we're really also saying is that if you do nothing, not only do they not improve, they actually get worse, but right. that the manipulation group improved. Um, 
So now we're doing a really, really neat study. It's funded by the Australian Spinal Research Foundation, but we're doing it. You saw my colleague's lab, Dr. Holmes. He's a biomechanist, and we're doing uh, we're doing a study where we're looking at uh, we have people with low level neck pain, and they're doing a throwing task, and we're looking at the kinematics of that task. Um, we're looking at their elbow joint position sense. We're looking at some of the neurophysiological measures in the lab, and we're trying to get the whole picture put together to try and figure out what is really happening with these people. And can we predict if if a person improves on their neurophys measures, does that predict the people who throw better? Does that predict the people who get improved elbows? So I guess I'm finally getting to the point where it's the neurophys stuff is really important to show objectively that something's changing. But then you have to put it together and say, okay, if something's firing more or less, does it actually enhance how they do something? Do they actually get better at doing a task? Right. Whether that's a motor performance, whether it's motor learning. And so I think my work has now evolved to always include some sort of performance measure alongside the neurophys measure. Very nice. So. Very nice. Uh, now, when you look back over your career, over the years, what what important research findings would you like to emphasize if you're just talking with somebody on the street or a chiropractor about your research um, and you wanted to quickly summarize things? How would you describe uh, what you've done and some of the important findings? I think that the first thing is that idea of neuroplasticity, that if you have an ongoing change in input to the nervous system, that it's going to change the nervous system processing and output. So if you have a patient comes in that's had a problem for a long time, I think it's really important in our explanation of prognosis to explain that to them, mm -hmm. that, you know, I can't necessarily just get you better overnight, but this is what I think is going on. This is what we know from neuroplasticity studies. The stat there are even chiropractic studies on neuro on neurophysiology or sorry, neuroplasticity. They are neurophysiology studies as well, <laughs> that have shown that the way your brain processes information has changed when you've had these ongoing changes in input from your neck or your back. Um that chiropractic can reverse that, and that, but that may take some time because the brain has been in this altered state of neuroplasticity or maladaptive plasticity for a long time, and we have to keep giving it the correct inputs so that it can, over time, start adjusting and having the correct outputs. And so it's almost like we have to get the brain to replasticize if you yeah. want. And I think when you start talking what i have found with patients i actually i actually explain chiropractic to patients as neuroplasticity well we're going to get to that <laughs> oh, cool. okay but they respond really well to that because it resonates with their experience nice so nice yeah i think i think patients uh, over the years being in practice just like you have i think patients for the most part seem to get it that it's not going to be a one-time mm -hmm. thing that it you know it's taken time for them to get into the state that they're in behaviorally, mentally, the whole nine, um, and that it will take some a little bit of time to, to change, yeah. to make major changes. Um, well, great. If you were to explain how an adjustment works to another scientist, let's, let's do that first, and then, and then we'll do it to a patient. Okay. Uh, so if you were to explain how an adjustment works, let's say to a, a scientist, a chiropractor, somebody a little bit more technically oriented, how would you describe that? Okay, I would say that at some point along the way, you may have had something, it might have been something major you knew about, like an accident. It might have been something quite subtle, like a reflex contraction. Uh, I had it happen to me in running a lot. A car would suddenly go in my path. I'd literally jam on the brakes with my quads and drag my patella and end up with a, a sore knee because of my overactive quadricep reflex contraction, right? So I think all the time we do these little minor injuries, Generally speaking, our bodies can adjust and, and self-adjust, really. But sometimes the strength of that reflex contraction is so strong. Sometimes the injury is such that you do not get full healing. Or the nervous system responds to the injury to protect us by switching off muscles or switching them on. And for whatever reason, even though the injury has healed at the tissue level, the change in afferent input that initiated the neuroplastic change does not reverse in all cases. And then when those people present to the chiropractor, what the chiropractor is able to do is by giving the nervous system an input. I often think of what we do as being like a calibration signal. So somewhere along the way, because the afferent input is not lining up with the true state of the peripheral tissue, the brain has no signal to calibrate on. And if you think of the neurophysiology of what we know about uh, joint afferents 
and muscle afferents, mainly muscle afferents are what signal, especially 1A afferents, uh-huh. signal to us where our joints are in space, right? right? When do muscle afferents fire? Only at end range. What do we do with chiropractic? We take a joint to end range and we do that high velocity manipulation. Maybe that firing of joint afferents gives the brain the calibration it signal it needs to properly normalize the efferent outflow to the gamma motor neurons so that the 1A can now signal correctly where uh-huh. the joint really is. And that's how I would hypothesize, for instance, that we improve joint position sense and that we normalize afferent input, which can then over time normalize all these other maladaptive plastic changes that we see at multiple levels of the central nervous system. Great. And so uh, how would you then explain uh, what, how an adjustment works to a patient, let's say? Can, okay. can we simplify that? Yeah, I do. I, I say to people, I say one of the things I say to them is, have you ever had the experience of you're driving somewhere in the morning and you usually turn left at a certain intersection and that morning you're supposed to turn right, but you turn left because you're so used to turning left. And everybody's had that experience who's ever driven a car, I'm sure. (laughs) And they all say, yes, yes. And I said, that's what's happened to your body. Your body has got so used to turning left because you've had this injury, your body responded in a certain way. I'm now trying to give it the correct input it needs to turn right but you've still got this strong signal or or even if you've had people paint over the lines on a road but you still are just programmed to go that way so we're trying to give enough inputs that you learn no I always now have to turn right at that intersection sure, I'm going to a sure, new place sure so it's uh you know and then I explain to them yes here this is what's happened is you have small little muscles in your spine the input from those muscles to the nervous system uh, the muscle might have been in spasm it might have been switched off it's not been given your brain the correct signal when I do the adjustment and manipulation I'm going to actually improve that signal and if we do it a few times your brain will begin to correct the correct signal and and actually start giving you the right outputs Excellent. And, and do you, th- and this is not part of my regular questions, but I just curious since we're going on this, uh, do you think that, um, doing exercise or engaging and like having a poor mental outlook or something, could we have like mental subluxations? Could we have diet induced subluxations? Oh, and these I, sorts of I things think too? 100%. I mean, I had a colleague years ago who just thought, that manipulation and or adjustments could fix everything and I said no you know we're sometimes I think the primary thing is a physiological problem in the muscle and yes definitely sure. we're the primary treatment sure I've also had many many patients over the years where I've said to them I'm the stopgap measure maybe they were people who were self-employed they were really busy they didn't have time to sort out whatever their stress issues were but they had this six-month period that was just so busy and literally I was keeping them on the road and I said as long as you know that I'm not going to be able to, as long as you're under this mental stress, I'm not going to be able to cure you, but I can help you manage so that you don't end up basically bedridden. So to me, there was also an ethical issue there as a practitioner that they honestly knew what their prognosis was. And we know that. We know um, there's a physio in Australia called Lorimer Mosley, and he does some fascinating Mm -hmm. work on the showing just the anticipation of pain, how it can modify reflexes. And in fact, there's an explosion of research. It's not even just, it's not even anymore the idea of psychosomatic that you think you have a problem and so you do. It's literally what the messages your body gives to your mind affect how your mind processes and you really genuinely have that problem and that physiological change. Exactly. And interestingly, some other research I do with exercise, I'm doing some work with exercise and depression. And we see changes in cortisol levels. We see changes in all kinds of biomarkers. And in those people, sometimes it's awful, awful life events have led to their depression. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, it, it um, is a biochemical imbalance that's an inherent part of their makeup. But we find in most cases, exercise can be a huge adjunct to that treatment, just, just aerobic exercise, you know, sort of helping them. And so I think, uh, I, I think all of that's really important. Excellent. Very good. Um, are, are there any tests uh, that you do, uh, let's say, similar to what you would do in the lab that you could recommend to, to practitioners that, you know, like simpler tests or... Well, I, the equipment I think that you have is a pretty expensive. It's pretty sophisticated, <laughs> yeah. I think there's some basic proprioceptive things you can do. I mean, probably some of the simple tests people do... Even basic, you know, balancing on one foot, balancing with your Mm, eyes closed, balancing on a foam surface if you're worried that balance is an issue. Um, 
proprioceptive tests, you know, even eyes closed, finger to nose, even looking at, you know, you can have them have their eyes closed and you can put one arm in a position and get them to match yeah, the other arm. Yep. I think there's things you can do that are fairly simple that give you some clues as to sort of what's going on mm -hmm. and then asking and listening to the patient. And sometimes they know things that they haven't even thought of or that they've not connected to their neck. And one thing I've often thought, I think one of the next things I do might be to develop a sensory motor integration questionnaire. Oh, great. Because I, I think some of these things these patients say, like I, I get, I noticed I was getting clumsy. I started to hit my elbow. I was starting to hit my head when I got out of the car. Those are all signs yeah. that their proprioception is altered, but it hasn't, they don't have pain yet, but there's certainly early clues that the incoming sensory information is not being processed appropriately. I love that. I look forward to that. <laughs> the, uh, the concept of chiropractic subluxation seems to be somewhat contentious, uh, both inside and outside the profession. Um, I know you've used uh, the term in some of your papers in the past, and I, I have as well. Uh, do you have any uh, opinions on, on that at all? Um, for me, basically, it's about communication. And, you know, in New Zealand, chiropractors tend to use the term subluxation. So if I'm communicating with a chiropractor in New Zealand, I'll often use the term subluxation because that's what they are used to thinking about it and calling it. I, I know that in North America, people are more used to talking about joint restrictions, joint fixations, joint dysfunction. And as long as it's clear, so as a scientist, if I'm going to use a term, I do something called an operational definition, right? I define at the start of an article what I mean by that term. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Scientifically, you can define it and it's okay. You can use whatever term you like. The other issue is interprofessional communication. Yep. So, of course, to orthopedic surgeons, subluxation means something quite different. It literally means a minor dislocation. So I guess there is that whole issue of I actually like the term subluxation in the sense that when it's operationally defined, it's really clear it means all the things. It's not just about the joint. It's about the muscles around it, the nervous system, the whole sure. complex around the joint. Sure. Uh, however, if you're talking, if you're trying to talk to another health professional and they think you're talking about a dislocation, that's a problem, right? Yeah, right. So to me, it's very much about your audience. It's about communication. And in many ways, I'd rather put that energy into doing research that's going to help practitioners and help the patients to really just move forward than to For arguing sure. over what to call it. Yeah, I 100% agree. And if we look around to other professions, all professions have these problems in defining mm. their terms. I'm thinking in psychology, uh, the term attention, it's very difficult oh. to define, operationally define. And most of the most of the concepts to try to explain it are analogies, yeah. like well, a filter or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Well, there's even an interesting one in EEG. There's something called theta waves, which are originally they were sort of four to seven hertz waves that are part of your EEG signal. But in the animal EEG work, there's basically there's certain oscillations from the hippocampus which may be at a slightly different frequency, still in that relative range, but actually they, the, the animal literature people and the human EEG people actually mean quite different things when uh, they talk about these theta waves, and yet you would just think this was a known entity. And so if you don't know that, you could inadvertently use the wrong terminology. You could create confusion. Uh -huh. uh, yes, Didn't I've done that, that a few times where I've stumbled, <laughs> even in science, into using a term in, in a different way than another discipline would use it, and it's... It's just as you, you learn as you go, right? Sure, absolutely. What do you see as some of the pressing issues within the profession at the moment? Um, that is actually a really good question, you know, because I think uh, one of the things that's changing a lot, I don't know so much about the states. I guess physios have always been a lot more autonomous in their practice. In Canada, there's been a big shift because physios used to be a lot more hospital-based, but there's been mm -hmm. an explosion, I'd say, in the last 25 years or so of physiotherapists in private practice. Obviously, as you get more and more people, some of them are going to go into post-grad. So sure. if physios are doing post-grad manipulation, is it the same as chiropractic? How do we work together? How do we complement each other? Uh -huh. What sort of practice models are going to work? And uh, here's one thing I have found from my own practice. It takes a long time to get good at manipulation, a long time. I, I still feel like I'm improving after 25 years at being a practitioner and I certainly felt there was a really steep learning curve in that first five years so to me if chiropractors really want something that they're excellent at I think manipulation is one clear thing and it's really keeping up what they do so that they maintain that excellence as one example right so and if that if you're going to pick that as something that you're 
you, we're not unique. We're not the only people who do it, but maybe because we do mainly that, maybe we get a bit better at it. Right. Uh, then in that, and then we can work very complementary in a complementary way with other healthcare practitioners who maybe don't want that to be their main focus. Maybe they'll they know enough. I'll give it a go. But if I don't get any immediate results, I want to refer to my colleague who does it all the time. Right. 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 Um, and I think it's important to start thinking about that. How do we work better for the, the sort of good of the patient? And yep. then whatever we are claiming to be good at, how do we keep our skills up so that we really are exactly. excellent at that? Exactly. One of the goals of this podcast is to motivate and assist practitioners and students to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who want to become scientists or researchers? Okay, here's the first thing, which is really probably the funny thing, is to become an excellent practitioner first. I think that is the strongest advice I could give anybody. Because if you already know that chiropractic works, you actually need that strong, I suppose you would call it, internal sense of who you are as a professional. Because otherwise you'll get very discouraged. Because in the lab, things don't always work out. <laughs> Techniques are time-consuming. Yeah. It's painstaking. You can be really disappointed. And I remember once we had an experiment that didn't work, and my supervisor said, oh, you've just disproved chiropractic. And I said, no. I said, we've just proved that that technique is not sensitive enough to measure the thing that we're trying to measure. So I think don't go into research to prove chiropractic to yourself. Become a really excellent practitioner. Know, know about what you do and then become a really excellent scientist and use really objective measures and keep looking for measures that are sensitive enough to measure the thing that you want to measure. And like I'm saying, we have techniques now that weren't even available 25 years ago yeah. that allow us to measure and show changes that we never thought we would be able to resolve down right. to... You know, the reason that that hamstring is not in spasm, to be actually be able to say what's changed at a neural level, whether you're more inhibited, less inhibited, that's pretty neat. That's awesome. And oftentimes the research tools or the techniques are already out there. We can just borrow some from other professions, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, there there is. And I think that's the other thing is if you're going to do science, whatever science you pick, even if you're going to do social science, psychology, epidemiology, whatever you do, find the best. Go and work with the best because that is really how you are going to advance as, as a person in terms of your own development. But it also means that you'll be really excellent at the techniques that you use. And then you're going to find the most, I suppose, trustworthy, but then also exciting, believable, usable results. Great. Any concluding remarks you'd like to share with everyone? Uh, I think your podcasts are a great idea. I think it's really neat to... Uh, allow people the chance to sort of get exposed to the different research that's out there because I, I do realize how especially with some of the workshops I was doing with practitioners it can be quite overwhelming and I was even amazed myself in preparing for this chronic pain workshop the explosion even in the last three years and you know the amount the level of vocabulary you need to be able to read some of these studies it is quite daunting and so um, yeah I just would like to I suppose, say to practitioners, keep keep up your excellent work and, and you're not alone and we're all actually trying to work to uh, make things better for you and for patients. Great. How can people learn more about your work? So um, there's a website at UOIT. So if, um, gosh, I'm just thinking out loud whether, I think it's just ca, and they should be able to get to it. Uh, and even if they Google my name, Bernadette Murphy with UIT, it should come up with the university websites and my email address and so on. So, uh, yeah, I welcome emails. That's usually the best way to get me. Great. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciated it. This was phenomenal. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Nice to talk to you. All right. <laughs>